Well, hello everyone and welcome to another episode here on RNFM Radio. Speaking of episodes, that's why you're here. This is episode 116. This is May 21st, 2014. And if you think, wait a minute, I just heard May 21st, 2014. Well, you're correct because this is our second show today because we just have so much content jam-packed with information here uh, for our listeners. Again, rnfmradio.com is where you're finding this podcast. We're also on TuneIn, Stitcher Radio, and of course, iTunes. You can find us under the hashtag RNFMRadio on pretty much every social media platform there is, Google+, YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn, you name it, we are there because we are everywhere you want to be. I am Kevin Ross, your co-host here, and of course, my, again, and I'm going to say it again twice today, Keith, my rock star, just kick butt co-host right here with me today, hanging out with you as well. Keith Carlson, how are you doing today, sir? I'm great, Kevin. And like I told you, flattery will get you everywhere. So thank you so much. It's great to be with you here too. And we have a wonderful guest for everyone today. And she is someone who we met on social media and then met in person at the National Nurses and Business Association Conference last fall in Florida. So we are welcoming Nadine Griskowiak, RNCEN. She began her nursing career in emergency departments and trauma centers across Oregon back in 1992. Then in 2006, she was diagnosed with celiac disease. At the time Nadine received this correct diagnosis, she had been so ill she expected to only live six months or less. Additionally, she'd been an ER nurse for 18 years and had consulted with many doctors, but until this point, she couldn't find an answer to what was killing her. Within just two weeks of being on a gluten-free diet, her health took a remarkable turn for the better, and Nadine's career also took a dramatic change. In 2007, she began immersing herself in celiac disease research and data, and she became a gluten intolerance celiac disease educator, and she realized she could help more people with this information than she ever could have helped in the emergency room. Presently, she is a national, and I'll have to say international, expert and speaker for the recognition and treatment of gluten intolerance and celiac disease. She's also the CEO of three independent businesses, RN On Call, Gluten Free RN, and Celiac Nurse Consulting. So first and foremost, Nadine is a patient advocate and an educator, and her mission is to educate people globally about gluten intolerance and celiac disease empowering them to improve their health and their quality of life through food. She's available for professional speaking engagements, focusing on gluten intolerance and celiac. And she's also available for private consultations, professional speaking engagements, and seminars for healthcare professionals. You can find her at glutenfreern.com. And Nadine, it is our pleasure to welcome you to RNFM Radio. Thank you, Keith and Kevin. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, my sister gluten-free RN out there, it is awesome to have you on this show. And I think it's going to be such high energy because we have met in the flesh. And I know that yeah. we were just talking before before we went, you know, started recording the podcast. And I just, I can't wait to jump in. And we want to learn more about your story, Nadine, because, oh, and for the listeners who are in your car listening to the podcast, you might want to pull over. It might make you a little woozy because you think, oh, wait a minute, I've got those symptoms going on. Well, there's light at the end of the tunnel because guess what? Nadine's here with us. So it might make sense to say, oh, wait, it's worked for her. So why don't we talk about your story and then just dive into gluten-free lifestyle? Okay. Um, so a little bit about my story is that I did get pneumonia in 2003, which prior to that, I thought I was super healthy. I worked in the emergency department, had been exposed to everything that you can potentially be exposed to in an emergency department, and but I considered myself to be super healthy. I, I thought I had an iron gut, I could eat anything I wanted, and I thought I rarely got sick. But I got this pneumonia in, in 2003, and from that point on, my health spiraled down It actually plummeted. To October 2006, I just had sinus surgery, which I now know I didn't need, and um, I stepped out of the shower one day and gave myself six months to live, and at that point, I pretty much prayed that it didn't take six months for me to die because I was so unwell, and at that point, um, my hair was falling out. My eyes were bugging out of my head. I looked like Marty Feldman, definitely Graves, Graves' disease. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Mm. Very, oh, very I love impressive. that. I love that compare. Yes, Mark got it. 
Got it. Now that's burned in my brain. There you go. Um, I think it's burned in a couple other people's brains too. Um, but anyway, medical look, but then I got uh, neuropathies. I would have numbness in my legs and my arms and my doctors suggested that perhaps it was because I was a knitter. And I did have to remind them that I didn't knit with my feet. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I looked like I was three to nine months pregnant, depending on the hour of the day. I had night sweats, my joints hurt, my muscles hurt. I had four plus pitting edema and all my lymph nodes were swollen. So I very nearly had a bilateral mastectomy, but my mine are still mine. So I did manage to keep them. But my daughter was 10 and I thought, well, it'd be bad for her if I died. And so I went to see one of the only dermatologists I hadn't seen. And because I'd always had eczema as a child, it was a familial thing. We all had it. Contact um, dermatitis, dyshydrotic eczema, it was misdiagnosed as many different things. So I went to see this dermatologist and I told the nurse what was going on head to toe. And plus I weighed 40 pounds more than I do now. Not necessarily a pretty picture. And um, the nurse left the room. The doctor came in and she said, I know what you have. It's really rare. I've never diagnosed it before, but you have celiac, excuse me, you have celiac disease and dermatitis herpetiformis. I said, that's really funny because I, I said, what, she said, well, it means you can't eat gluten anymore. And I said, okay, what's gluten? And she said, well, it's wheat, barley, rye, and oats. And I said, well, that's really funny too, because that's breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then depending on how my shift goes in the emergency department, I might wash it down with a beer or two. And she said, well, you can't, you can't do that anymore. I said, okay. And they took a blood test and a skin biopsy and I went off home and I told my family, I have a really rare disease and I can't eat. There's nothing. They just, <laughs> I'm done. And they said, okay, mom, whatever. So in the meantime, we went up to New York City, and this is 2006, and I did the best I could on a gluten-free diet. And I came back, and I called up Dr. Haberman's office, and I said, hey, what are my test results show? And they said, well, your celiac panel is negative. You don't have celiac disease. And your skin biopsy is negative. You have a rash because you scratch your skin. And I thought, wow, um, that pretty much confirms that I'm crazy. I've made this all up. Thank you very much. So I was a little sobby about that. And my family, to their credit, actually said, Mom, you're clearly better on this gluten-free diet. And so I stayed on it. And within four months, I was so much better. I started my first business, which is the RN on call. And then within another month, I was so horrified by what I truly found out about gluten intolerance and celiac diseases, I started the gluten-free RN. And my initial intent with that was to educate the healthcare providers I work with, my people, the ones that miss me. <laughs> and... Um, but they did, I found out they didn't necessarily want to know about celiac disease, which was a little concerning to me. Um, one, because there's no pill, and two, because people get better, apparently. And number one, we forgot to diagnose it or, or research it or look for it for 60 years in this country. So there, we're, we're way behind the eight ball. So I'm, I'm obviously not dead. And I'm much healthier as a 48-year-old woman than I've ever been in my life, just going on a gluten-free diet. And I have to say that after four and a half years, I was still not completely better. So I kicked it up and went on a paleo diet and now um, extremely healthy, very uh, active. I'm going to play softball tonight. Um, everything is, is extremely good health-wise. Well, that is so good to hear. And thank you for sharing your story. Nadine, because there's probably people out there who have symptoms like the ones you were describing, and mm -hmm. they may also think they're crazy, and they may also be treated like they're crazy by their family, friends, colleagues, and healthcare providers. So, you right. know, gluten, I live in Santa Fe, Kevin lives up in Boulder, so gluten-free is like normal everywhere you turn. However, there are always people, even here, who say, oh, it's just a fad diet, you know, there's really nothing to it, it's just something people are, some bandwagon everyone's jumping on. So I'm sure you're going to tell us it's not a fad, and you can tell us why we should consider this an issue, and tell us a little bit about, you know, why this is happening. What's going on in the world that's, that's creating this, either the awareness or the increase in diagnosis? Well, um... Celiac disease did go away in the for roughly 60 years. In Europe, a totally different story. They continued to pursue it and study it and research. And this country pretty much went away right after World War II ended. And they stopped researching it and funding 
any research in this. I can find the same article in textbooks, the same paragraphs in textbooks from 1950s and the textbooks in 2008. It hasn't changed. It did start to change in about 2011. So what happened? Well, Dr. Fasano and a bunch of other GI docs from around the world started to come to the United States in the 1990s, and they said, where are all your celiac patients? And, our, and the docs here said, we don't have celiac disease here. And they said, well, that's really funny because it's genetic. Where are you hiding them? And they said, well, we really don't have celiac disease. And a lot of the doctors still believe that. Believe. It's, and that's true. It's not a fad. So the, those doctors actually started to started up all the celiac disease centers in the United States. However, they're primarily on the East Coast. The furthest one west is the University of Chicago, or there's one, there's a little one at Mayo Clinic. So if you remember, my, my tests were all negative. However, I did get a gene test, and I found out that I'm homozygous for DQ2.5, which pretty much means I'm guaranteed to have celiac disease because I got a gene from my mother and my father. Despite the, you know, the negative blood test that would have you know, should have told people that I did not have celiac disease. Genetically, I'm predisposed at an extremely high level. I did have celiac disease despite my negative blood test. So is it a fad? No. When you hide a disease for six years or you don't investigate it and you don't study it, it's not a fad when suddenly people start to actually realize that it's actually a, a health issue. Um, there are people that will always jump on fad diets and I understand that. I don't think that they take anything away from those of us that actually have celiac disease or are on a gluten-free diet. I think that any conversation that can be had about celiac disease anytime you can clear up any of the misinformation, more power to those people. But I do want the correct information out there. And I have information in the world and that's where I like to get it from because the United States at this point is still not at the forefront of uh, medical research regarding celiac disease. Well, Nadine, and speaking of having the right information, now we yeah. know we know testing is probably just one facet here of the bigger picture. So first, right. who should be tested? And you just just briefly touched on the intricacies of that testing and, and what the results are. So really, who should be tested, and what do we do with the results, uh, or how deep do we actually have to look? Well, that's an interesting question, Kevin, because in 2004, the NIH actually got together with a lot of these providers and they said, well, we should do a mass screening because it meets the WHO criteria, which is the World Health Organization criteria for mass, mass screening, but nobody got tested. And that was over 10 years ago. And then at the same meeting, they said that they were going to do a healthcare education program and that didn't happen either. So what I do know is that for the last 10 years, those particular doctors have been looking for a pill or a non-dietary treatment plan for celiac disease, which, number one, won't ever work, and number two, um, has prevented a lot of people from actually getting diagnosed correctly. I was just going to say, um, that just starts off for me, and I think maybe for many others out there, Nadine, is just that prejudice against the the disease because you you said that before about celiac and in, in, in its existence and I too was tested and tested negative for uh, celiac so again I just wanted to jump in and say personally for me that 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 happened to me as well so I just wanted to keep our listeners in tune with that because maybe they have tested negative but are still having symptoms so feel free to take the floor again I just wanted to say that no that's true um, and what we find is that the the blood tests are 70% false negative nationwide. And that's, I'm not even quite sure really why we do them. And there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, one, we're only testing for the anti-tissue transglutaminase 2 and not the 3 and 6. The 2 is a, like a widespread tissue transglutaminase. But the 3 is associated with the skin disorder, which would be the dermatitis or pediformis. And interestingly enough, the TTG6 is uh, related to the neurological disorder related to celiac disease. Now, in numerous studies, what we found is that celiac disease is not primarily digestive. And what I mean by that is people do not present with primarily GI symptoms, like gas or bloating or constipation, diarrhea, whatever it is, difficulty swallowing. It's primarily a neurological disorder. So things like migraine headaches, seizure disorders, neuropathies, gastroparesis, um, 
uh, seizure disorders, pick something. ALS, MS, um, lots of different neurological presentations. And so, number one, people are getting missed because doctors are still looking for the two symptoms of anorexia or um, weight loss, significant weight loss, or chronic diarrhea. And typically, those are the only two symptoms the docs are treating or testing for celiac disease for. Um, the testing is not very accurate. The gene testing will tell you if you're predisposed for celiac disease with a DQ2 or DQ8. It's not diagnostic. However, 50%, somewhere between 40 and 50% of the white population carries a DQ2 or DQ8. So that's an awful lot of people that are predisposed. But those are just white people. Those aren't um, Native Americans or Hispanic Americans or anybody from South America. We are lacking in a lot of those prevalent studies. So Nadine, I just wanted to ask this question. We all tend to think about, or at least I think about, celiac and gluten intolerance as being a disease that develops in terms of GI symptoms, so diarrhea, constipation, bloating, etc. However, you're saying that it's often manifests in neurological ways rather than in the GI tract. So I'm curious, since you speak in Europe, and I know you do research in Italy, and you've spoken at various meetings in Europe and other countries, what are you seeing in terms of this constellation of symptoms in other countries? Is it the same worldwide? Yes, it is the same worldwide. Um, and actually, I haven't spoken in, in uh, at any of the conferences in Europe yet. I'm, I'm hoping to do that this summer or this fall coming up. But um, I do talk to Dr. Haja Vasiliu quite a bit, and I pay attention to a lot of his research. And he was at the Columbia University Celiac Disease Center conference on the non-dietary treatment plan for celiac disease this, um, this past March. And he showed very compelling videos of patients, young pretty much middle-aged men, I will say in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, that had been pretty much diagnosed with things like um, psychosomatic <laughs> disorders, Parkinson's, all kinds of things. And what really what they had was uh, celiac cerebellar ataxia and white matter lesions on their brain associated with celiac disease. And the, tragic, the tragedy is, is that those patients were dead. So the neurological component of celiac disease will kill you just as readily as the undiagnosed gastrointestinal component will. Well, and it's, no, I was going to say, it's just great to hear that it isn't just a GI issue because we do know that mental wellness, because I don't want to use illness per se, but our mental wellness, neurological wellness could certainly be a symptom a sign of what could be going on in our gut or what we actually put in our gut. That is extremely well said, Kevin. Um, there's that gut-brain connection, and our, our guts and the bacteria in our guts will con- communicate very effectively to your brain. And just think of yeast. If you have a yeast overgrowth, they will talk to your brain and say, eat some ice cream. And they may say that every night so that they can actually live on in your intestines. But your brain can't say, yeast, I'm not going to feed you sugar tonight. It just doesn't happen. So that gut-brain connection and all that communication goes from your gut to your brain. It's not necessarily a two-way highway. And so when you have overgrowth of bacteria or you have a leaky gut and then therefore you have leaky blood vessels and a leaky blood-brain barrier, which by the way is not a good idea, those proteins can actually cross the blood-brain barrier. And by those proteins, I mean the gliden protein or the gluten the generic term would be the gluten, can cross the blood-brain barrier cause, causing inflammation and hypoxia. Now, as nurses, we all know that your brain needs a couple of things, and what it needs the most of is oxygen. So here, here we have a situation where your brain can't even get oxygen. So leading to things like, at the very low end, brain fog or depression or anxiety, and then at the very high end, things like ADD, um, autism, which, by the way, is hugely on the rise, and schizophrenia. So I give entire eight-hour lectures just on the mental health component of celiac disease. Wow. Well, Nadine, this some of us might be hearing this thinking, oh, my God, there's so many people I know who have so many symptoms right. like this. I've <laughs> got to go home and talk to them right away. But in terms of prevalence, what are we seeing 
say, here in the United States, for instance? What would you say in terms of the prevalence of celiac disease? What, I've, what I would say is I want you to pay attention to a couple things. One, the prevalence about seven years ago was one in 5,000. So it was really considered really rare. Over the last seven years, it's come down to one in 2,500, one in 1,000, one in 750, one in 500, one in 350, one in 250, one in 133, and it currently sits at one in 100. Can you see where that's going? Mm-hmm. And so, but that, that's, again, for primarily white people. Uh, African-Americans, there's no major study that has been done for that population. But there was a great study done in 2006 in Mexico City, and, and they only did the t- tissue transglutaminase. They didn't do the whole entire celiac panel. What they found is that there's celiac disease in Mexico City at a rate in, for females, 1 in 33, and for men, 1 in 40. So, that, but nobody's telling the Hispanic population that for some reason. And no study has ever been done on the Native American population. And I will mention one other study because I think it's it's compelling because people will say, well, we've been eating wheat for 10,000 years, right? And so what's the problem? Well, the problem is, is that even the people that have been supposedly eating wheat for 10,000 years, you know, the people in Mesopotamia, you know, that whole area in the Middle East and then Northern Africa, they did a study in 2001, and it was the only WHO-funded study, which is the World Health Organization, which I think is interesting that they only funded one study on a diarrheal disease related to celiac disease. They found celiac disease at a rate of 1 in 18 in the pediatric population in Sahari, Algeria, but no follow-up study has ever been done. They haven't actually done anything with that information. So what is the true prevalence of celiac disease? We're hopefully going to find out. At some point, hopefully someone will do some actual real studies. Well, and I, I agree, and I hope so as well. And, you know, Nadine, it seems like, as you said earlier, I have a lot of patients who often will attempt to adopt that gluten-free lifestyle because it starts in the gut and then tell me later how much better they feel emotionally, more, you know, emotional right. stability. So. It's, but it's interesting that you say that from a neurological component because I actually have patients who have seizure disorders who are now better managed, uh, you know, as yeah. a collective on their medications and, of course, their lifestyle and diet, especially uh, than they were before. But it is interesting that if we can't, we should be taking a look at it not just from a gut standpoint, but again, like you said, neurological because. You're right. Maybe people don't feel gassy and bloaty, but maybe they're a little bit more irritable or just have mood lability. You know, they're just very labile. Uh, Maybe they have explosive disorders where they just get so keyed up and they, you know, just fly off the handle. And maybe that's better managed. So as nurses, you know, what what can we do to learn? Well, obviously, we need to hit you up, Nadine, because you're just a wealth of information. But what can we do to empower ourselves (laughs) so that we can actually empower our patients? Right. And I do recommend that people get educated. Um, I am sitting in an office that is full of resources from around the world. Um, This is what I do. But any nurse can actually either contact myself or any of the other nurses or the physicians that are experts in celiac disease and really just start self-educating because there isn't a program yet. That is one of the things I'm trying to do is um, go over to Italy and, and set up an international program for celiac disease education. But in the meantime, I'm here. I will happily come and do presentations so that people understand really what this is. Because I, I, I do understand that there's a fair amount of skepticism in the, in the medical community. Um, but you have to understand, we are a for-profit healthcare society in the United States. In Italy, it takes two to three weeks to get diagnosed with celiac disease correctly because they're actively looking for people with celiac disease. And this is the same thing in the UK, anywhere in Europe, anywhere with a universal healthcare system, they understand that food is medicine and it's very easy to actually help people manage celiac disease if you are providing them with the correct food and the right information. But here in the United States, we, we haven't gotten to that point yet for a number of reasons, but hopefully the more people get really educated about it and really understand that, number one, you're, whatever you see on TV is influenced by whoever pays for the, the um, commercials. So there's a lot of um, corporate influence on what people actually hear. So if you hear celiac disease as a fad, you actually should be looking at who are the sponsors for that program 
or that print media because it does influence what information you get. Mm. So I do think that people really need to um, buckle down and really just decide that this is going to be a nursing specialty, just like diabetic educator. This is a perfect uh, opportunity for nurses to really specialize in something that can make a huge difference in people's difference in people's lives just by changing their diet. So Nadine, you're saying that with the prevalence really increasing at an astronomical rate, you quoted us those statistics at how many people mm-hmm. it's gone from rare to extremely prevalent. And we could talk about the socioeconomic issues and the political issues and you know why why wheat has changed over the years, et cetera. There's so many things we could talk about. But from a nursing standpoint, so there's no specialty right now. There's nothing, there's no, no. certification a nurse can do to become a, a celiac or gluten intolerance educator like in diabetes. So say there's nurses out there listening right now and mm-hmm. they feel like, okay, I see family, I see colleagues, I see patients who have these types of symptoms and I'd like to educate them. So basically you're saying that any nurse listening right now basically has to educate him or herself and could mm-hmm. actually could actually become somewhat of an expert so that they could actively educate others around this including their colleagues that with whom they work. Correct. Mm, okay. So say there was a nurse out there who wanted to do this, what would you recommend they do first? Do they just contact you and contact someone? And then are there, are there certain websites or studies where our listeners should go to really see the most up-to-date information? They certainly can call me first. Um, my, I'm readily available. You can call me on my phone. You can email me with any questions or concerns or issues. Um, people, I get phone calls all the time which if I don't get back to you right away, just call me again. Um, I'm just behind a little bit. But there's, there is a wealth of information. You can go to Costco now and get a lot of the um, number one paleo cookbooks or paleo um, information books like Rob Wolf's The Paleo Diet Solution um, is an excellent resource. Just start somewhere. Nadine, I was just going to say, start somewhere. Start at the gluten-free RN, at gluten-free RN. Because the, your website will actually be plugged into this podcast, so when they're listening to it, they can literally click through. But certainly, if you want to share more resources, that's that's totally fine. Um, but I think a great place is to start with you, Nadine, because even being gluten-free myself and putting that into my practice over the last two years as a nurse, I learned so much even from you that short time that we spent together at the NNBA conference in October. Thank you, Kevin. Yes, there, um, actually, I... I Having studied this and gone through all the research and everything, it's um, if you have a question that I can't answer, which I can answer, well, I think pretty much most of the questions that people throw at me, if I can't find the answer, if I can't, if I don't have it off the top of my head, I will contact the expert in celiac disease around the world and and find out what their perspective is. So, if like I said, if I don't know the answer, I will find the answer from an, a leading world expert. Well, that's good to get it from the leading world expert, but I'll consider you one of those. But, Nadine, what, what are you doing on the larger scale? And what I mean by that is, obviously, we met at a conference, and you just told me that you're going to be uh, in my neck of the woods here. So, what are you doing to educate uh, not only the public, but, but other companies and businesses out there about this epidemic? Well, I certainly will come out and give talks anywhere that people would would like me to do it. And I do it for professional conferences. I've gone to Oklahoma, San Francisco, uh, Head Start, and some of the nutrition and um, nutritionists and dietetic associations have paid me to come in and actually give talks on celiac disease, which is is phenomenal. I love that. Uh, Nurses um, are great. I I will happily do any of the nursing um, conventions or anything like that. But I also give talks at grocery stores, believe it or not, and then take people on tours, which is a fun thing for me because I get to show them the products that nobody sees. They, they're there, those gluten-free products or the, the paleo products are there, but people only see in the grocery store what they're accustomed to seeing or they're conditioned to see. So one of the favorite things that I do after I give a talk at you know grocery stores or some like 
someplace like that, is to actually take people out into the store and show them the products that I think are extremely valuable and nutrient-dense and will help them get better faster. Um, what else do I do? I um, give those. I give eight-hour lectures. I'm also hopefully going to go to Italy within the next year, either to get my master's in celiac disease because I can do it there, and I'm right now finishing up my BSN uh, at Linfield in order to do that. And also, hopefully, going to work with Dr. Fasano in order to develop that that nursing certification in, on an international scale, both for nurses and for dietitians and nutritionists, so that the the information is is correct and that the people get um, trained correctly. Well, that get sounds the right information. Well, that sounds great, Nadine. It sounds like you're leveraging your expertise and your credentials and the credibility that you have out there in the world to be able to push for this certification for nurses to actually come into being, right? So that will actually, do you feel that this certification is kind of on the burner? Do you feel like it'll happen sometime in the next few years? In the next few years, definitely. And I'm, this summer, my, my one goal is to get my book written and get it out there so that hopefully we can re- I can reach more people with this information than, you know, just giving classes and lectures in limited areas. So if we get a book out, when I get my book out, um, I will have a broader reach. Well, that's great. And, you know, Nadine, over the course of this conversation, you've mentioned the country of Italy several times in terms of... <laughs> that they're testing people widely, that you're going to go study there and maybe get a master's degree there. So when the average person, myself included, thinks of Italy, we think of pasta. So we think of Italy as being kind of gluten central (laughs) on the face of the planet. So what's going on in Italy and why are they so aware of this when it seems like it would fly in the face of what most of us understand about about Italian cuisine and lifestyle? Well, the prevalence of celiac disease in Italy is um, is relatively high, and I don't have the exact number right now, but they do test every child by the age of six, which is interesting. We don't do that here. And then, it, like I said, they're very aggressive about actually testing people this, as soon as they show any symptoms. It's always on the differential diagnosis. The other thing that's interesting about Italy, and you mentioned the food, is that it's, if you serve food in Italy, it is illegal not to serve gluten-free food. So you must provide gluten-free food. So everyone's educated. This is it's part of their legal system. It's part of their medical system. It's part of their social system. Hmm. Unfortunately, one of the things I hear, uh, Americans especially when they travel to Italy or Europe or something, they say, well, you know, I'm celiac here, but I can go to Europe and I can eat their wheat or their bread or something. And I'm like, so my answer to that is always, do you think the celiacs from Italy or, you know, Sweden or anywhere else can eat their wheat just because you think you don't have any symptoms? So really, I caution people about going to Italy or anywhere else as a celiac and actually consuming their wheat because they think it's significantly different. Mm. Those proteins are still going to cause damage. Right. And I would assume then, I hope that nurses and healthcare providers in those countries like Italy, for instance, are much more savvy and educated than most of us are about this disease and about the symptoms that it causes. Correct. And that's true. They have entire textbooks on celiac disease. We we in the United States do not have a textbook on celiac disease. And I find that just somewhat horrifying. So um, we don't have any real textbook or guide or anything written by for for medical professionals in schools or nurses in schools or very limited amount of knowledge that's available to us. Well and I, I wanted you know Keith was was talking about the areas that we live in and he's correct. Uh, myself being gluten free, I'm actually able to go to several restaurants in my area that will support that dietary need. And I think what you're doing out there, educating the, the, the businesses out there, the restaurants out there, or, or people who might at least uh, frequent those establishments or be a part of those establishments, I think it, it really helps because a lot of times, this is one of the big obstacles, is that people say to me, well, 
you know, I can do this at home, but what about when I leave? You know, where do I go? And if there's only like one place that they can go, or maybe they just feel isolated and they can't go. And they say, I really like that social aspect of going out to dinner. So that's really going to be a huge obstacle for me, but not necessarily. Uh, Not only to empower them to ask the server uh, what's in, you know, because you did the same thing when we went out to dinner. You asked the server about what the ingredients were, but really that restaurants are now giving you a separate, in some cases, gluten-free menu. Right. That's true. So you have to understand, too, that this is an economic issue in that um, 33% of Americans are actually interested in a a gluten-free diet or on a gluten-free diet at this point. So there's a huge amount of interest. And so the restaurants and the food manufacturers and everybody is trying to jump on that bandwagon, which is great for education provided you're providing the correct information and the food that is actually not going to contaminate people. So a lot of restaurants will say they have gluten-free food, but it's the same food or it's gluten-free food prepared on on the same surfaces, which will lead to cross-contamination. So even cross-contamination like a breadcrumb will trigger the same autoimmune response. So they really have to be educated, and this is why it's so tricky. Because even if I get if I get a breadcrumb at this point, because my system is so pure and gluten-free at this point, if I get a breadcrumb, I have symptoms for 10 weeks. That's two and a half months. So I really do caution, you know, restaurants or people from just going to restaurants that say they have gluten-free food. That's why I ask all the questions to make sure that it's safe and that they really truly understand what they're doing. Well, and, and the business person inside of me says to the restaurateur that it would behoove you to educate yourself about gluten-free and to provide that service because guess what? Even when it comes down to dollars and cents and you think, well, it's going to be more of an investment on my end as a restaurant, so as an owner. However, if your patrons or your customers start declining because you don't support that, then you're you're going to feel it either way. And I think you, you'd rather invest a little bit more in time and money so that you can support your evolving clientele. Because again, the clientele is gravitating toward that gluten-free uh, lifestyle. And so I see restaurants, I've, I've had them say to me point blank, I can't afford not to do this because 50% <laughs> or more of my customers request it. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And That's I true. just, and... Going back to the medical and nursing world, um, aside from restaurants, I want to say that if more and more nurses and healthcare professionals become educated, the more pressure there will be on the powers that be to to bring gluten intolerance in more into the yeah. mainstream and to have more healthcare professionals not not dismiss it as a fad. So if we can have more nurses and doctors and others on board, it'll help all of us educate ourselves and educate others. And that will increase the, the awareness all around, don't you think? Correct. I, I, I firmly believe that. And we, at this point, it almost has to be a grassroots thing where people have to educate themselves. There is information out there, but it's, it's difficult to find to some degree. It's not being taught in medical schools. It's not being taught in nursing schools, trust me. Um, And we need to actually just take it from whatever level we can start at and really educating ourselves and then educating each other. Here's the thing. This is my my perspective. Until they develop a pill, people will not get diagnosed correctly. Once Once they develop a pill, everybody will get diagnosed because then they'll have something to sell. So at this point, with everybody deciding, you know, I'm going to go on a gluten-free diet, more power to them. Please go on a gluten-free diet. If it makes you feel better, that's great. You can always do the DNA testing. Um, I will never dis- dissuade or discourage someone from getting going on a gluten-free diet. I do encourage people to get tested first, keeping in mind that the blood tests are 70% false negative, and you can't be ruled out. You can be ruled in for celiac disease, but you can't be ruled out with any testing at this point. Well, no, and I, and I agree with that, Nadine. And because rather than trying to hit a moving target 
or throw a dart and, you know, hoping that you're going to hit the bullseye. I mean, cause I do, I have, mm-hmm. I have folks who just are, they want to be so proactive that they, they start just stripping away all of the stuff in their diet. And I'm like, well, it would be good for us to kind of work with the lights on, so to speak. I mean, I'm glad that you're <laughs> gung ho about that, um, exactly. but it is good to ha- make informed decisions right. on both sides from both the clinical aspects. And then of course, as the patient can make an informed decision uh, for themselves. So, you know, that being said, Nadine, because it looks like, yeah, we've been talking about this for quite some time. So we know testing, it's, it's important, but not necessarily like, you know, live or die on that one test. You, you really have to be proactive as a patient and both, uh, not only as a patient, but for your patient as a nurse to continue to dig a little bit further, uh, especially if symptoms are occurring. Is that, it, I just, is that correct? Again, like sometimes it's not just on the surface. That's yeah, it's not just a surface right. thing. It could be right. a little bit deeper than that. Oh, absolutely. And so, and people should always be given the option of going on a gluten-free diet. There is no harm in it. You know, you do all your testing. Let's just say you do all the testing. People look great on paper. They don't have celiac disease on paper. And, you know, things that they still feel crappy, which is what a, a lot of people will come in and they say, you know, I just don't feel good. I feel horrible. I'm getting worse. I'm not getting better despite doing all these things. And so you say, hey, go on a gluten-free diet. If you're really sick, go on a paleo diet. And lo and behold, people get better because it all comes down, you know, food is medicine. Hippocrates knew that. And so change the food, heal the gut, change the gut microbia, impact the brain on levels we don't even understand yet, and people get better. There's no downside to that. Right. And, and I think that's the take-home message, both from a clinical uh, perspective as a nurse uh, or as any type of clinician that you are or a patient is that, it's highly unlikely that you will uh, that it will result in uh, any negative effects because it's not like we're saying yeah drink uh, eight glasses of water and then have a pineapple every Wednesday you know and that's like your diet yeah, it, no, no this is you're still getting nutrients uh, you're still feeding your body and your mind and most likely in a in a more likely healthier way uh, because of what you're choosing to put in your body so I think that's just obviously. a a good take-home message that this isn't a fad and certainly I've had across the board I think probably 100% of the time at this point positive outcomes in some way when people have adopted this lifestyle and that's true I really haven't had anybody get worse no, I, I agree. I haven't had anybody say I've got worsening symptoms. Some people might say, well, I'm a little bit more hungry or I'm having mm-hmm. an issue, like I said, with the restaurants and, and stuff like that. But again, when you ask them afterward, you know, just months down the road, uh, but, but you know what, I'll take that because I feel excellent. I feel so good. I don't want to go back to the way that I'm feeling. So they'll, they'll spend a little bit of that extra energy that they have now to do more research on restaurants that are adopting, you know, or supporting mm-hmm. that lifestyle so that they can go out and enjoy or spend that extra time at the grocery store, making sure that they are getting the things that, that need to be prepared uh, for them. So again, like I said, energy is a big play in this. And I've had a lot of people say that they just feel more rejuvenated uh, each, like when they just wake up, they just feel better when they wake up in the morning. Right. People sleep better. They're, you know, more restful sleep. Well, here's the thing too, is if you have gut damage and you can't absorb nutrients and so that your body can't, you know, is, is, not running on all the fuel it needs from any nutrient. Pick a vitamin, you know, vitamin D or um, zinc or any of the any of the B vitamins. Those are extremely important for your body. But if your guts are damaged and you can't absorb those, it impacts everything in your body. So if you go on a gluten-free diet, at the very least, you're going to heal your your guts. You're going to the villi are going to grow back. You're going to be able to absorb those nutrients. And some people do eat more food, especially in the beginning, because prior to this, they'd been starving. Their bodies were starving of all those nutrients. So in order to get, you know, once it heals and you can absorb those nutrients, your body's saying, please give me more of that. I need that because I'm healing and I need it in order to get better. And I like it because you've taken away the thing that's been preventing me, your body, from actually absorbing the nutrients. So... It's good all the way around. Right. Well, Nadine, I just wanted to say that um, this is great education for all of us, whether we're lay people or, um, or we're professionals in the healthcare. 
And I want to make sure before you go too that people know that they should go to glutenfreern.com to find you. And there's a lovely blog and there's information about testing. There are stories. There are signs and symptoms that you can learn from the website. And there's also links to you on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. So there's lots of places that people can find you. And I want to make sure our community connects with you because you have so much important information to share. So from my perspective, I just want to thank you for bringing all this information to bear for us. And it's great to finally have you on the show. I know we all met last October and we've been wanting to have you on for a long time. So it's great to get you on RNFM radio and get the word out there. And is it okay for nurses just to contact you if they'd like to learn a little bit more about, you know, how you got where you are and how they might be able to get, get there too? Oh, absolutely. And I welcome people to call or email and say, you know, I'd really just either like to set up a consultation or I just have a few questions. How do I do what you do? Anything. Um, the more the more information I can get out there, the, the easier my job will be. So I'm very much about education and um, helping people understand uh, everything about this because it's a huge topic. Well, and Nadine, again, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us and, of course, our community here at RNFM Radio. I, of course, look for, I hope you and I might be able to connect while you're here in my area. I know you're busy, uh, but maybe we'll at least get a drive-by in and I can just check out, again, my sister gluten-free RN out there. So would love to love to <laughs> hang out with you. But I just, I enjoy hanging out with you anyway, and I loved hanging out with you today. So thanks so much for hanging out with us. And sharing. Thanks, yes, thank you, Kevin and Keith. This has been phenomenal. I, I very much enjoyed the um, the interview process. Thank You're you. You're welcome. Well, it's our pleasure, and I know our community will benefit greatly from this. So, anyway, have a great rest of your afternoon, and hopefully, I will catch you maybe here shortly uh, again when you're in the Denver area. It's a deal. Thanks. Thanks, Nadine. Well, Keith, I think that this, again, another informative interview, Nadine, is, is a wealth of information. We already knew that. So we already had this like pre-screening in person because she is such an expert in the field. And I think really an advocate that needs, you know, I don't. I would say, I don't know, how do I want to say this? I, I think that you know, gluten-free is cert- or, you know, celiac and, and gluten intolerance is certainly an epidemic. It's certainly something that people are struggling with and they don't even know that they're struggling with it. And I just appreciate having a clinician out there who wants to apprise themselves of, you know, these issues and how we can treat it with just some lifestyle interventions. And people talk about the money aspects of it, but, you know, pharmaceuticals are extremely expensive. So I'd rather actually put that back into my food. That's a great point, Kevin. And I also want to point out that, you know, Nadine is a nurse, just like us, just like a lot of our listeners. Uh, She had symptoms herself, you know, and she decided she needed to do something about it because she felt like she was going to die. And she did something about it and educated herself and has now become what I see as an international expert on gluten intolerance and on um, on celiac disease. So she's used, in a way, her nursing expertise and her credibility as a nurse to leverage, she's leveraged that to become an expert and be able to to educate others. So I think she's taken that nursing background with her own personal experience, melded them together into an amazing opportunity for herself professionally. So I just want to encourage all the nurses out there that that Nadine is a wonderful example of a nurse who's learned how to use her interests and what's going on with her personally in her life and leverage them in a way that helps her to actually have a lucrative career and do really good work out in the world. So, Kevin, this is just a great conversation. We should have Nadine back when her book comes out to talk about its, you know, about this in more depth and talk about her book and the ways that she's reaching an even broader audience. Well, I couldn't agree more with that. We obviously will have Nadine back. And I just wanted to re- reiterate what she was talking about as far as education, because that does that never ends at the institution. We're always learning and we're always teaching each other. And I've taught so many other healthcare providers out there, especially when I've got folks with 
uh, comorbidities and, and all of these issues where they uh, literally will go back to a particular healthcare provider and they will ask, well, what medicines have changed or what did this specialist change? And, and I say, nothing. We actually went gluten-free uh, with, this, with this particular patient or this whole household. And they look at me like, no, you're kidding me, right? Uh, but then they welcome that opportunity to say, well, let's open up this conversation because I want to know more about this because this might be something that I need to educate myself about, especially when I'm dealing with patients with very similar symptoms and especially neurological uh, in nature. So I literally had docs pull me aside or meet with me or have a lunch with me later on to find out more about what it is that we're doing as a corporation for a lot of our patients. So again, the, the learning does not end at that institution. We continue to educate each other. And nurses, I know you might not feel this way, but you can continue to educate uh, physicians and nurse practitioners and PAs and you know podiatrists uh, for Pete's sake. I mean, just anybody. We're here to learn from each other. Right. Well, Kevin, I want to say thank you for another great show. This is episode 116. And Nadine, you're still listening out there. Thank you so much for being here with us. Kev, we have some great shows coming up in June, July, and beyond. And I encourage everyone just to go to rnfmradio.com and you can learn all about our upcoming guests, both live and recorded. So there's lots of great stuff coming up. Just tune in or just that hashtag, RNFM Radio, you can find out all you need to know on all of our platforms. But RNFM Radio is really the best place to be. So, Kevin, thanks so much. You have a great day up in Boulder, my friend. I'm going to let you close out the show, and I will see you next time. Sounds great. Well, everyone out there, we hope that you have found this information informative. I know that you have. Hopefully, it motivates you to make a change. It moves the needle for you. I hope that you continue to innovate and create as a nurse. Find passion in your life and your career each and every day. Care for yourself while caring for others. And of course, work on that healthy gut and of course, your healthy mind. We look forward to having you back here with us again on RNFM Radio.